Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On oil pricing, uh, not really too much to report. Uh, there's still that huge backwardation. So $70 when you get out two years is $60. Uh, the interesting thing is if you look at the second quarter reports, uh, there's the, uh, the price, no one's reached it. No one, no one has 70 because you have old hedges. And then when you put the new hedges on, they're 60. So uh, companies are really operating at $60, not $70. Um, is $60 uh, a reasonable number so that, you know, it's not too likely we go back to $40 or $30? Probably. Um, and uh, there's admirable constraint on production, both being shown by OPEC and also by Oil, oil production in the U.S. So, uh, you know, I think I think sixty dollars. You know, that ten dollar backwardation is a reasonable number. Uh, the current month, you know, which is either WTI or Brent trades two dollars higher or bounce around. But I think the oil price is pretty pretty well established. Um, on oil, oil and gas companies, remember, you don't want to be in something unless. Their cash flow after capex is uh, is uh, I mean there is 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 uh, put another way their capex isn't much more than two thirds of their cash flow so uh, and they still have increase in production that means you're down to very few companies who are able to do that and uh, Pioneers one Diamondbacks one. And when you get into the gas companies, you're pretty much with the Marcellus companies. And they, uh, you know, Antero and EQT and Range and CNX and Southwestern all made good progress in, in uh, the first and second quarters towards getting there. And in fact, to switch to natural gas pricing, it's really quite strong. Once again, a lot of backwardation. In other words, uh, for the rest of the year, it's like, I don't know, three... 80 or something, just under $4. But when you get out a year or two years, well, when you get out two years, you're back down under $3. So I think that backwardation will continue. But, you know, natural gas is behaving pretty well. Uh, LNG pricing, which is the incremental market for U.S. gas, is behaving great. I mean, it's like $13 in North Asia. But the JKM index, which is Japan, Korea, and China, and then it's generally about a buck and a half less than that in Europe. Those are excellent prices for August and, uh, you know, definitely support uh, U.S. gas pricing. Um, the uh, As far as uh, interest rates go, the 10-year bond, U.S. Treasury bond, has been bouncing between 115, 1.15%, 1.15%, and 1.20%. Those are really low Numbers. I mean, in February, when everyone thought that, that uh, uh, they're pointing to like two percent or two and a quarter percent or whatnot for that base rate in our economy by the end of the year, 
five late February, it gotten up to 175, but it's just collapsed since then. The question is, what does this mean? And come up with three explanations. Uh, uh, and I would put probability kind of equally, uh, on each of the three. One explanation is that, uh, the Delta variant, uh, is going to hold not only our economy back, but, uh, the economies in the, you know, Europe and uh, Japan and China and India and whatnot. And, uh, so that's, that's, that's possible, possible. Cause number one. Cause number two is that because uh, we in the U.S. and also Europe and Japan, probably not China so much, have had such very, very easy monetary policy to try to cope with the results from the pandemic, that sooner or later there is going to be some inflation. And consumer price index, you know, was uh, up quite a lot in May and June compared to the prior, prior years on, you know, in the 5% range. It eventually, the, not only our central bank, our Federal Reserve, but also the European Bank and Bank of Japan and whatnot are going to have to <clears throat> reduce uh, 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 the money supply uh, by not, <clears throat> not buying all those you know, 120 billion bonds a month. And and uh, and uh, and <clears throat> we'll have an old-fashioned recession. I mean, that's how recessions used to happen. That inflation would flare up, and the central banks would get get more, you know, tighten up on the money supply, and and uh, and we get, you know, some reduced economic activity. So that's that's number two. Number three is uh, kind of more what you read in a tabloid. Uh, <laughs> number three. Maybe if I was assessing probabilities, I'd do 30, 30, and 40 for number three. Number three is has to do with the midterm elections in 22. I mean, the Democrats want to retain control of the House and where they're, they're only five seats in the majority, uh, and they want to pick up Senate seats so they don't have that 50-50 uh, <clears throat> stalemate where it gives Joe Manson and that, that young lady from uh, Arizona outsized influence. Uh, <clears throat> but the chairman of the Federal Reserve and the vice chairman, Richard Clarendon is the vice chairman, Jay Powell is the chairman, up for reappointment. And it may be, I mean, they sh- this shouldn't happen, but it may be that monetary policy is being influenced by the fact that they'd like to be reappointed. Um, and uh, the <clears throat> political arm of the White House will hold that until 23. So if you're concerned about tightening monetary policy, its impact on the stock market and whatnot, I'm, I, I think it's a fair prediction that I'm not saying that they might not reduce quantitative easing by maybe buying initially, they buy $40 billion of mortgage bonds every month and $80 billion of U.S. Treasuries. Maybe one of these months they go to twenty billion mortgage bonds and and twenty and and continue to do sixty billion. So I don't think there's going to be any abrupt changes. Uh, they say their uh, database. Uh, I guess what I'm saying with option three that they're kind of politically based. Uh, now, <clears throat> uh, why would a Federal Reserve chairman, a vice chairman, want to be reappointed? Well, 
you know, I think if you've been in finance all your life, I think being chairman of the Federal Reserve or vice chairman of the Federal Reserve is uh, something you probably don't want to give up. You know, uh, what are you going to do for an encore? I mean, I guess you can write books or something or serve as uh, president of the university. But I suspect that when you're in the position, you probably want to stay in the position. It may be that you think you're uniquely qualified to do a good job, and that's why you want to stay in the position. But, you know, that's that's option three. Um, in terms of impact on, on uh, you know, thing, you know we, we advocate, Mike advocates, I advocate, you only own about 10 stocks, and, and you try to pick things that uh, they're not just for whether they're going to do well next month or even next year. You pick things that you can stick in, stay in for five or 10 years. I don't think... Uh, you know, is low interest rates causing the stock market to be higher than it otherwise would be? Absolutely. But I don't think it makes sense to, to, uh, to, uh, sell anything because, uh, interest rates look too low or, or monetary policy looks way too loose. Uh, I, I, if, if, if option three is right, you know, you won't have much of a change until after November 22. Uh, that's still, uh, 15 months away. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the thing to do is to just stay invested. So what do you do? I mean, when you're an active investor, you don't want to, uh, you know, just sit on your hands. Obviously, you want to stay absolutely up to date on the 10 or 12 companies you have. Very hard to find. You can find good companies, but the good companies are awfully pricey. So what's a person to do? So uh, with that, uh Mike and I uh, had this chat this this morning, and we'll try to replicate it about other things to look at. That you know, probably the thing to do uh, is to look at things where you're not as familiar, uh, where you haven't owned stock in a particular industry, and by reading 10Ks and 10Qs and investors' lives and whatnot, try to learn more. I mean, what you want to do if you own 10 or 12 things, it's good to own to really get into your head another 10 or 12 or 15 things. Those things that you learn and get to know may think you're too high priced or you're not comfortable, but you're expanding your, your horizons. You have other things that you would, you know, you're working towards a decision to put money into. And with that, uh, going to go over to Mike and, uh, Mike, it turns out knows quite a lot about biotech, which is something I know nothing about. And I've always, tried to avoid the area because uh, I felt uh, that uh, we were spending way too much money on healthcare. Like we spend uh, uh, 18% of our GMP on healthcare and no one else does more than about 11 or 12%. And if we're ever going to get to a point where we uh, are not running such a big government deficit, we'd have to think healthcare would have to be uh, redone. Uh, readjusted, uh, changed, uh, maybe Medicare for everyone. I, I don't know quite how to make the changes that would be, uh, that would be worthwhile, that would keep our quality of care up, but would reduce what it costs. So I just kind of had a, you know, a, 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 a mental block against thinking about anything healthcare. However, however, biotech is an, an innovation and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, even though 
at some point, someone may be able to figure out how to squeeze healthcare spending from 18 or 19 percent of GMP down to 12, 11, or 12 percent. Uh, still, biotech might prosper. With that, I turn it over to Mike. All right. So, biotech is uh, it's an exciting field, but I, I should be upfront that I'm also would never consider myself an expert. Um, however, I am spending a lot more time on it these days because um, of the things that Hunt mentioned is always trying to expand your, your universe and constantly trying to challenge those 10 or so positions that you have in that, like, you may find something better than what you already have in your portfolio. So it's a, it's a fun process, but it's also, um, it's a lot of knowing what you don't know. And I, I guess what I, what I'm coming, uh, coming to discover is there's a few things that play one, um, there's some interesting technologies that are really driving the next generation of um, biotech. And those are really this custom rapid development treatment. Um, and the example that all of us are now familiar with is mRNA vaccines. Um, but there's a handful of other technologies such as CRISPR, uh, which are enabling us to do far more interesting things um, than we had ever thought possible. Um, I think of all of those, these little things that are uniquely uh, 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 capable of doing a small part, but really requiring a whole bunch of different set of them together, kind of like software development. So from software development, you have packages of software and maybe it's a small package that does one small thing, but if you have hundreds of those, you can build a software application with them. And by creating them, you may be able to create a uh, make the development of software faster and more um, more efficient, and that's that, that's essentially what's happened over the last couple of decades in software development. So we're starting to see some of these new technologies for biotech also taking a similar similar structure. Um, so, what are the downsides to investing in biotech right now? Um, aside from the healthcare issues. That, that Hunt mentioned as far as our cost of healthcare being higher. Most, um, most pharmaceutical companies, most biotech companies, they typically have something specific that they're going after. It's a relatively easy to size market. Um, and the costs for developing drugs are relatively well known. And the probabilities of success at different phases are relatively well known. Um, the downside to that is um, investing in early stage biotech is very difficult. It requires a large portfolio based, essentially venture capital approach um, where you want to place, um, you know, hundreds of, of bets in order to win on, on, in the aggregate. Um, from the perspective of trying to hold one or two in your portfolio, it's a different story. Um, however, uh, I think, I think you can make a case for, or at least I'm, I'm getting closer personally to being able to make a case for, um, um, one to be in my portfolio. Uh, the, the second, or I think about the third most important thing to think about is the regulatory system. Um, we've, again, we've, we as a public have become more aware of what's going on with drug approvals, mainly because the, uh, the vaccine hasn't been approved by the FDA. The CDC's released some kind of conflicting uh, statements over the over the course of the COVID pandemic, um, so it's 
it's highlighting that with these newer technologies, the existing regulatory infrastructure isn't necessarily um, up to the task in its current form. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't change. And I'm going to give an example here of um, a, a really interesting thing that happened a few months ago. If you remember, um, there was a um, Alzheimer's treatment that was uh, that, that basically was turned down by the by the board that was assessing the risk and efficacy profile of this drug. Um, and then the acting head of the FDA, Janet Woodcock, um, overturned that decision and enabled it to be, uh, or, or, or essentially greenlit it. Um, the really interesting, and you know, you can take this many different ways. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to take this from the perspective of a medical expert and the safety side. I'm going to take this from the perspective of the investor and what this means for innovation and markets. Um, the the, ex- the interesting thing is that by greenlighting that drug, even though the efficacy data was not sufficient, um, the safety data was sufficient um, in their respect. And if you think about the people that have Alzheimer's, they're, they're willing to take a risk in order to get a treatment that might extend their, their, uh, their, their lifeline. So by approving this drug, Overnight, Janet Woodcock created a multi-billion dollar industry. And what that means is, is that all of those, almost every single major pharmaceutical company has had an Alzheimer's research division. And over the course of the last uh, five years, most of them have been shut down. So uh, due to the fact that they've been consistently unsuccessful in, in coming up with solutions. So by greenlighting that treatment, they have now kickstarted um, an industry. So uh, dialing this back to some of the new building blocks, CRISPR, mRNA vaccines, and some of the others that are uh, enabling kind of this new generation of medicines, I would look for someone like Janet Woodcock, if she ends up sticking around and they end up making some changes within the FDA in order to more rapidly improve these types of treatment. I think the future for biotech could change rapidly, which would likely mean disrupting some, some sort of disruption from the status quo, which may mean bigger companies get bigger or some of the smaller companies end up being able to make a larger impact. Yeah. The uh, Mike ought to cover this, this lady is probably not going to be, confirmed as the new leader, uh, but her the advisory board that had recommended against approval, uh, more, more than half of them resigned in protest. And it, the argument, as Mike said, wasn't over whether or not it was safe or unsafe. It was whether or not it was effective. And then, like a lot of these uh, new treatments, uh, it was going to be very expensive. I mean, order of magnitude hundred thousand dollars a year to uh to take uh you know to to, to pay for the uh, pay for the for for the treatment. Uh the the uh the uh, uh <clears throat> I think that I think that um the other thing that of course happens with biotech is that uh, the larger companies, the Mercs and 
Pfizer's and J&J's and whatnot, uh, Lily's, uh, will have a tendency, if something shows real promise, to buy it. So uh, and a lot of the businesses that, that we review and would own, uh, you, don't, you don't have that M&A exit. You have to rely on cash flow developing and, and free cash flow developing and starting a dividend and being able to, like I'm always saying about energy companies, spend less than the cash flow, have, uh, have the business grow. Uh, and uh, in in biotech, you can if, if that's going to happen prospectively, and uh, you know one of the large pharmaceutical companies believes it's going to happen, uh, you can have a a very attractive exit uh, for cash or or stock in the uh, in the larger pharmaceutical companies. So it's one of the upsides. I I think the tricky part of this is, as Mike said, you're only only ten or twelve. You're not companies that doesn't give you the flexibility to, uh, you know, if you have five or six and you think one or two of them might work and the other four aren't going to work. Well, given our kind of strategy of not owning more than a dozen companies, you, you can't do that. So I think to the extent that our, my thinking, my own progress here, we're going to have to be in more established businesses that have not been bought out and which have one or two or three uh, 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 medicines they develop that are generating a great deal of cash flow. And then you're making an assessment of can they maintain that cash flow at least through patent expiration and uh, can they bring on additional uh, additional uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, biotech uh, drugs that that will uh, enable them to grow their cash flow. Back over to Mike. It's, we may be setting. We may be setting. We our, our our way of thinking about investing may conflict with the right way to think about uh, investing in this industry. But we'll we'll continue to work on that week to week and uh, and have some more commentary as time goes on. Yeah, and I think we can talk about a couple names that are interesting from, you know, a high level to start looking at. Um, obviously, we've talked about Moderna pretty extensively. That's a unique one uh, because they've developed a product that could either be they could either be a one hit wonder or they could transition from just this COVID vaccine into uh, many more things. Uh, recently, a, a interview with their CEO, there was a, a discussion about moving into um, essentially a respiratory flu shot uh, that's, that might include COVID um, and the the most recent flu flu shots. But again, in order for that to work, you need an update um, to the way that things are approved at the FDA. But realistically, what they're capable of now. That, with mRNA is the ability to um, is the the ability to uh, to design the the vaccine based on uh, shorter timelines because currently the they have to sort of guess at which um, which flus are going to be floating around and they include that in the in the vaccine but generally that's, those decisions are made six months out um, and theoretically with mRNA vaccines they could do that much faster. So um, another 
another one to consider and is Pfizer, which is a much more established business that has a free cash yield north of 5% and has a dividend of north of 3%, um, which starts to hit more of the things that we talk about on this call. Um, Johnson Johnson also falls under that. Although uh, whether you, I, I'm sort of uh, personally frustrated with Johnson and Johnson because of the opioid um, epidemic and their role in it, but they seem to have resolved uh, through lawsuits some of their their uh, issues there. And then the two other technology companies that I think are most interesting in um, in uh, in in biotech right now, as far as like core technology, is Illumina, who is very expensive on a free cash flow basis, but the technology is extremely important to. Um, the development of many of these companies uh, that's a San Diego company actually. Um, and then also Pacific biosciences, which is, I believe another San Diego company um, that technically competes with Illumina. And I, I won't go too into detail on those, but um, I think I'll, I'll use this as opportunity to just foreshadow some of the things that we're, um, we're digging deeper on and um, we can get deeper discussions in future weeks. Yeah. And just in closing, we talked last week about China China influence, government and Communist Party influence on Chinese-based companies. And uh, I think with the intervening time, I think it's a little clearer that they're picking segments of, of, uh, of the Chinese businesses that they want to de-emphasize. Uh, 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 certainly this extra education I think that they cracked down on, uh, and then certainly uh, uh, feeling that uh, their uh, school-age kids are spending too much time on computer games. So that is, uh, if, if you compare two of the very large companies in China, Tencent and and uh, Alibaba, uh, they are both, um, uh, you know, into uh, uh, payment systems and and. Uh, and in effect being kind of like the Chinese equivalent of Amazon, but Tencent has a much bigger uh, exposure to uh, games. And uh, so Alibaba has been relatively stable. Tencent has been down a lot. Um, and Mike made an interesting point when we were talking earlier. He said, look, if you own 10 or 12 things, you can't really have any of them, any one of them, have uh, the kind of risk that any, uh, any Chinese-based uh, company has in terms of uh, interference from, from, the, from the government or from the Communist Party. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, uh, with, in closing, we'll just get a couple of comments from Mike on, uh, on that aspect of uh, that sector of the, uh, of the software uh, and... Uh, business, uh, you know, you can, you can live with a high multiple on Amazon and, and Alphabet, but uh, even though Alphabet, even though Alibaba is way, way, way cheaper, uh, can you take the risk that being uh, based in China provides with that? Michael, make a few closing remarks on, on that subject. Sure. So, you know, I, I, what I don't want is to come across as xenophobic. 
what the point that 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 I want to make about this is that in, if you're going to have a, a, a concentrated portfolio, that portfolio should be within your realm of expertise. And personally, and for most of us living here in the U.S., investing in China is a is a different game. And what they've done as far as these these government actions are. Uh, are unprecedented from our perspective, but from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party, if you believe every, everything they say, then they are actually making these changes in order to actually increase competition and, in the case of Tencent and the games, decrease the, the activity or discourage the activity that uh, they, they don't want to see. Um, so, you know, Ray Dalio had an article on LinkedIn earlier this week that was kind of pro-China investing. And I think that's fine for him because he's running one of the largest hedge funds in the world. And he has plenty um, of people that are involved and really aware of what's going on there. I think that for most of us, we don't have that, those resources. And I I think it would be um, to be wise to assess yourself as to what you feel like you can comfortably wrap your head around um, and a, a foreign government's um, um, regulatory regime and uh, constantly evolving as it is, it's hard enough to keep up with what's likely happening here in the U.S., but to do that for China as well is going to be very challenging. Mike and Hunt, this is Greg Druhat. I'm sorry to interject right now, but one of the things I found that bothers me most about the Chinese companies is that the Americans and foreign investors are really only allowed to invest in variable interest entities, which are not the actual companies themselves, as far as I know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah, it's essentially so a shell corporation. Yeah, it's essentially a shell corporation, um, and that that is an additional level of risk. And one of the things that Hunt and I talked about earlier today is um, – as kind of a way to think through another risk, um, Alibaba doesn't exactly return shares to uh, uh, return capital to shareholders except by share repurchases. You don't see any of these variable interest entities, to my knowledge, pay dividends. Um, so if you're comfortable with continued share repurchases, maybe you could get comfortable with the variable interest entity structure, but it is very complicated. And the Chinese law actually, from my understanding, foreign investors cannot own Chinese companies. So all it is, the variable interest entity has contractual rights to the, um, to, to the proceeds and the, the cash flows of the underlying business. So it's complicated. We haven't seen one get really blown up. But it will be interesting to see what happens um, as that structure. A lot of a lot of Western-based investors have lost a lot of money on some of those companies. So you can assume that litigation will ensue. Um, no idea if it will go anywhere. Right. Hey, listen, we're over our our uh, half hour. Everyone, uh, be well, stay healthy, and uh, we'll we'll be on again. 3.30 next Wednesday. Thank you for joining us this week. 
please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.